Welcome back to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything. You might want to know about the academic field of game studies or the parts of it we have read. My name is Cameron, and with me, as always, is Michael. Hi there, Cameron. How's it going? Oh, it's it's going good. I'm just uh, here uh, using my workshop to build a little nuclear reactor to make myself a good citizen of mm -hmm. uh, DYI-topia. I'm building a firework. <laughs> I'm building a little canister that's made of glass that shoots fire out of it, uh -huh. and it's cool it's and not weird at all, and in fact, it makes me a part of the creator of the economy or something. <laughs> I'm not quite sure, actually, what the upshot is. Like, I understand this book's you know, claim that it makes, but I don't actually understand what the magazine might have said. Yeah. But uh, that's we'll a wild about that. magazine. It is. You ever read any of that magazine? Make magazine? Nope. You ever read Craft Magazine? No. <laughs> you ever read Craft with a K Magazine? It's all about the products that Craft makes. Oh yes, of course. I read that every week. Yeah, you yeah. gotta get that. You think they're gonna bring back the uh, the the white cheddar uh, macaronis? Oh, I I hope so. They the the they were teasing that during the live stream last month. <laughs> I hope they're not faking me out. I really hope it's gonna come back for the upcoming Craft Fortnite event. <laughs> Where we get the macaroni cannon and the uh, and the chili gun <laughs> with the chili warp. It turns you into a bowl of chili and then someone throws the chili bowl. And then when it spills eventually, you know, when this eventually when it rotates enough that the chili would spill out, that's where you teleport to. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty sweet. If Epic wasn't so busy firing everybody, they could hire me. Uh-huh. <laughs> Listen hire to that. That's gold spilling out of my mouth right here. I just all, made that up. All these lucrative craft deals just down the drain. I did it through speculation. Oh, ho, 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 final chapter. You got zoomed. Uh, what are we reading this month, Michael? Uh, this month, we are reading The Digital is Kid Stuff, Making Creative Laborers for a Precarious Economy by Joseph Nguyen, who is an associate professor of critical media studies at UT Dallas. Mm hmm. This book came out from University of Minnesota Press in 2021. It's new. Part of our uh, summer of children. Nope. Yeah, winter yeah. of children. There we go. Yeah. Fall, falling into the winter of children. <laughs> a, uh, I don't know, like a, you know, short run, maybe a couple. We got maybe one or two more books going on here where we talk about uh, stuff that talks about kids. Because they play, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. They're a big part of game studies. Uh, we might use this as an opportunity to go backward forward. I don't really know yet. We still haven't planned out. We've had a lot of people pitch a lot of books to us, which is interesting. Uh, more books have been pitched for this than anyone has ever recommended to us for any reason before. It is really interesting because that, that is true. I don't know what it is about specifically The Winter of Children, but that just opened the floodgates in terms of recommendations people had. Yeah, I, it's a fascinating thing. But uh, we landed on this um, but partially because I'd read a chunk of it before uh, and uh, thought it'd be really good. And it's fun. I enjoyed uh, reading uh, Nguyen's book. And uh, think we're going to have a lot to talk about. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe this is a dissertation. I, I mean, I don't know for certain, but it certainly seems like it. Uh, I was looking. So uh, Nguyen on his faculty webpage 
has a list of publications and so on. Uh, and he got his PhD from University of California, Davis in 2016. And mm -hmm. uh, the timeline from 2016 to 2021 seems about right for turning a dissertation into a book. And then furthermore, the previous publications, uh, I can see older, like some of his earliest publications are uh, clearly things that end up uh, going into these chapters. Mm -hmm. Well, the uh, the reason I say that it's a dissertation, it feel number one, like uh, um, stylistically, mm -hmm. um, formulaically, uh, generically, not generic isn't bad, but isn't the genre it is in. It has the kind of dissertation feel to it. Mm -hmm. In the acknowledgments, it says financial support at the University of California, uh, Davis for this stage of the project's development included a provost fellowship, all this other stuff. So that made me think, oh, okay, this is a you know, some something like the dissertation that uh, was defended quite a while back. Did you read the acknowledgments? I did not, no. Well, let me tell you this. Maybe this is going to unlock something for you about this book. Little uh, little game study, study buddies, you know, uh, that if you go to like this, like one, two Super Mario Brothers, start getting in them pipes and shit, flying all uh -huh, around. Uh-huh. Going to different levels. This book grew from a dissertation I developed under the great care and encouragement of Colin Milburn, oh. John Marks, and Michael Zeiser. Weird. Does my does my copy of the book not have acknowledgments? They don't give it to you on the uh, on the internet on, on on the bleep the the on the ones and twos or the zeros and ones. Yeah, I'm not seeing this. Uh, so at the but... very end, it's a, it's before the notes. Oh, oh, that's why. Okay. I was yeah, like... <laughs> yeah. It's in a weird was... spot. Okay. Uh, okay, so Colin Milburn. There we go. Mm-hmm. That really unlocked a lot for me in this book. Mm-hmm. Because you can see, you can, well, you can just see some, some similar interests to, mm -hmm. you know, to what Milburn's got going on in terms of, uh, it, I, I can just see some pretty clear directions of, um, if you brought these cool ideas to Colin Milburn, it feels like Colin Milburn would be like, well, here's what I think about that. And then some of that feels like it's, you know, that's what like a good advisor does, right? It's like, have you thought about these things? And this book is so interested in the kind of movement back and forth between like cultural ideas and then culture, cultural artifacts or objects and then back into the culture itself. That's really what I associate with Milburn very heavily, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's happening in every single chapter here. So just a fun little, you know, little moment where you can see people's um you know genealogy at play mm -hmm. something like that yeah no it's very interesting there's the the minecraft chapter i think cites milburn directly and i remember thinking when i saw that well of course he's here and i'm actually surprised he's not here more <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah the, the book is pretty straightforward as you said it uh clearly has kind of the dissertation formula to it which is something we've talked about on multiple episodes um but in this case it's you know introduction uh which is kind of a, a broad strokes theoretical historical summary, right? Like what mm -hmm. is what is kind of the field I am speaking out of and back to um, all the previous scholarship uh, summaries of the various chapters and then four chapters, boom, 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 each on a different topic, but each of them relating back to the core theme that is laid out in the introduction. And then each of the chapters is kind of an iteration or sort of um, aspect or version of the book's main claim. So the introduction starts out with just saying, 
uh, What Are We to Make of Digital Creative Youth, and talks about how in uh, contemporary American culture, uh, youth is constructed, and that's an important point, right? It's not just like mm -hmm. youth exists and is associated with creativity or is creative. It is contemporary American culture, quote, constructs youth in the digital era as inextricable from creativity, meaning... Uh, what uh, uh, Nguyen is kind of zeroing in on here is the way that when we talk about young people, uh, and particularly when we talk about young people and their relationships to digital technology, uh, one of the kind of hallmarks or, or things that is always coming up is like how gosh darn creative these kids can be with their digital technology. That's right. And that creates a, a an environment, a, a culture where uh, we just instinctively assume that young people are going to be good with digital technology and in some way creative with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're uh, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> That's why everything that they do is just a friggin meme. <laughs> they only know how, the kids these days. They only know how to meme. <laughs> They only know how to ooh face, and they only know how to make the put put the big eyeballs in. Mm -hmm. You know that they, they go ooh, what is that? They only know how to do that stuff. They don't <laughs> know how to use a shovel. Oh, that's right. Is that is that what you mean? Yes, yeah, that's that what exactly. you're talking about. Yeah, they don't know how to use the shovel. They're always they're always on the Instagram. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, this is this is a fairly. I don't know. We, we have all sorts of listeners, but for you and me, probably this is a fairly uncontroversial thing to say that like children or the youth, right, are basically screens onto which adults project all of their anxieties and hopes about the future. And this is I mean, this has been true for, I guess, for a while now, but it's especially true regarding media technologies now. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the things that Nguyen is pointing out and talks about, say, um, uh, there, there was a sense, right, generationally, let's say, uh, that like millennials uh, were very intimate with technology, right? They're, they're, millennials mm -hmm. are kind of the first generation uh, that gets talked about as like digital natives, um, mm -hmm. which is Sherry Turkle shows up here. That's her term, uh, mm -hmm. meaning like basically kids who grow up with computers and with the Internet and, and working with those things. Um, and Nguyen points out that, uh, you know, part of this uh, uh, sense that millennials are intimate with technology is not really so much built out of the fact that we use computers in school as it is a kind of like cultural narrative that is pushed by like advertising firms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and nevertheless, we did see, and it is a reality that throughout the 80s and 90s, as Nguyen talks about, there was a push to put computers into classrooms and to get kids to uh, familiarize themselves with computers. Uh, whereas prior to that point, they had been, you know, computers, that is to say, uh, computers had been, you know, fairly, uh, uh, I guess removed or distant objects but like in in the 80s and 90s suddenly oh oh the the computers are going to be the technology of the future and so the kids need to be using the computers now so they know how to work with them in the future when computers run everything mm -hmm. uh this uh then as uh, he says i'm going to quote this um this results in a kind of creative economy where discourses, quote, negotiate and naturalize the economic insecurity and precarious labor pervasive under the auspices of creative work in an increasingly digital world. 
Yeah, so so the book kind of across its chapters looks at moments where uh youth um whether literally young people or like this notion of youth or adolescence where it intersects with creativity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and with narrative or kind of cultural narratives around creativity and technologies of creativity. So what happens when kids or people who are treated like kids as in the Instagram chapter, right? Mm-hmm. Like what happens when they run into the brick wall that is the economic and capitalistic assumptions of how creativity is supposed to be constrained, produced, um, and normalized. Mm-hmm. Um, because, hey, look, we're all in neoliberalism. Right. Did you know that a thing that really matters is your ability to be flexible and creative within the marketplace? I did not know that. Maybe you should make a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the other way to talk about this book is like... <laughs> It's like, yeah, this sure is describing the conditions under which I labor. <laughs> yeah, in Minecraft. <laughs> I've never mined a craft. Not um, even once? Not even once. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Do you, do you get the, the, like, the in Minecraft meme? You know what no, I'm talking about? No. Like, I'm going to beat you up in Minecraft. Oh, that's pretty good. Or, But you would actually say something like, I'm going to murder you, Michael. <laughs> In Minecraft. I would say that. Yeah, you would say that. Uh-huh. You, you to the many other Michaels. There could uh-huh. be only one. Right. But no, yeah, it, it, it was a, a a youthful meme at uh, one point. I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're, they, they're wild. They know how to get around systems of domination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, how, how flexible of them. Uh, yeah. Do you, you want to talk about Minecraft? Well, we we could. We could also just uh, the note that I was going to make is that the other thing that happens here is that Nguyen points out that uh, creativity itself, you kind of gestured at this, uh, mm-hmm. creativity itself is also kind of socially constructed, right? Like th- that when mm-hmm. uh, people talk about creativity, if you press hard enough, it turns out they mean uh, certain things. Uh, and those things that we maybe prize highly now are not things that have always been highly prized historically. And this is also there's mm-hmm. material about this throughout the book um, that we'll probably touch on as we as we need to. But Nguyen is very good about pointing out like, hey, our idea of childhood and children and what children do and like what is a good child that's historically situated. And it's changed quite a lot since about, say, 1950 or so. Right. In America, mm-hmm. at least. So. Uh, yeah, we can talk about Minecraft. Well, the a thing I want to say about that is I think that Nguyen is really good at that move. It mm-hmm. happens a lot throughout this book of um, giving a really good like one, two, three hit of cultural context or historical context with some primary sources to give you a sense of like, what is the narrative happening here? Um, I think it gets a little loosey, just, just loose uh, later on in the book where there start being citations that like, Suggest some really big ideas. I, I've got one I'm going to bring up later just because it's interesting, not because I'm like, you know, it's I'm not finger wagging. It's just like yeah. an interesting claim. But there's some footnotes that start to become like world historical in nature. You know what I mean? Where I'm like, I, this is seven sources going on here. I, I think maybe this needed a couple more sentences in the book. Mm-hmm. But overall, I think that that Nguyen is really, really good at giving you like the the, the four sentences that really matter about the historical context and then like playing that out in mm-hmm. you know the history of creati- creativity or whatever um the instagram chapter we'll get to in a minute but uh i think it does a really good job of that too you know mm-hmm. of, of li- hit, hitting historical stakes really clearly um so if you know if you're looking at how to do that how do you how do you 
make a historical claim and then like kind of back it up with the analytics. I think this is a really good book to go to to learn how to do that. It also makes me like a little bit mournful that we're like quote unquote post Foucault, meaning <laughs> that like Foucault's method has been so uh, fundamentally absorbed into our critical apparatus because like this creativity ch- chunk, right? Mm-hmm. I would I would rather read. I liked what's happening here. I think it's good context. It sets up the book fine. No complaints about its function in this book. If I had my druthers, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. It would be 55 pages long. <laughs> right? Like oh, oh. it would be it would be the most brutal, you know, beat by beat. And then this is when, you know, Lord Bing Bongington invented creativity in 1611. <laughs> you know what I mean? It would yeah. be one of those where it's like, oh, interesting. All right, fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think no one could pull it off, but it's not the kind of book it is. But yeah. If it were 19, you know, whatever, 1984, 1985, we'd be swimming in it. Mm. <laughs> we'd be learning about it. Yeah, so chapter one, Minecraft and the building blocks of creative individuality. This is a chapter about Minecraft, as is the title might tell you. Uh, and uh, just a quote from Dwin here from the beginning. I quote, I argue that Minecraft as a digital game allows players to experiment with various socio-political and environmental conditions historically debated as necessary for shaping creative subjects and facilitating invention. Now that might sound rather wild, but one of the really cool things about this chapter uh, is how it does actually thread this interesting needle of uh, putting Minecraft into dialogue, uh, you know, in reverse history here with like uh, construction toys, right? It's like a genre mm-hmm. of like actual physical material toy that uh, has mm-hmm. existed before and kind of how how have uh, those things been marketed, branded, conceived, and so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, a, a tinker toy, a mm-hmm. Lego, mm-hmm. a Mindstorm, and a, then, uh, a uh, the, the little Abe Lincoln log cabin thing. <laughs> yeah. Lincoln oh, logs. Lincoln logs. There you the go. Easy one. Um, yeah. And then even... Uh, before that, and this is like this is like a really fat. This is like a Michael Lutz like, oh, tell me more. Uh, uh, island narratives is the other thing that's yeah. important here. Uh, yeah. Talking about specifically like you know Moore's Utopia, but uh, also Bacon's. Uh, wait, not Bacon. Is it Bacon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, Bacon's the New, New Atlantis. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then also, I think uh, you mean Saint Sir Thomas More. Uh, yeah, and and. Uh, Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. Yeah. Right. Y'all early modernists, y'all love talking about Daniel Defoe. Well, sort of. Y'all love Robinson. Any, anytime someone who studies literature between 1400 and 1800 has the opportunity to, y'all are going off about Robinson Crusoe. (laughs) Well, as I've been around, I've seen it. As this chapter demonstrates, Robinson Crusoe is extremely important for understanding uh, just how people are in human nature and, 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 you know, what would it be like uh, if you lived in a state of nature? What were the, what were the tough decisions you would have to make? You know, I like when he does all that stuff and then he like just looks across the island. He's like, oh, crap, there's pirates who live here, too. <laughs> That's what I remember from Robin Robinson Crusoe reading it as like, a you know, an 11 year old or whatever. <laughs> it was like, oh, what a cool adventure story. And he's like, oh, there's pirates here already mm-hmm. on this island. Oops. Dang it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But yeah, the, all of these things kind of contribute to a narrative of experimentation, self-creation, self-making. And they're all kind of um, 
uh, also interlinked with capitalism and our mm-hmm. narratives we tell ourselves about being an independent, you know, uh, operator or whatever. Right. Yeah, ba- basically, uh, when to unpack some of what I quoted there, uh, when we talk about Minecraft allowing players to experiment with various sociopolitical and environmental conditions, you might be like, wait, what? What is he talking about? Uh, what he means, and this is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing this kind of out of order relative to how the chapter works through it. But um, uh, something like New Atlantis or uh, Utopia. Uh, you, you need to tell people what those are. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt to, with a clarifying point, but mm-hmm. people don't necessarily know what either of those things are. Okay. Well, Utopia is the famous one, so maybe uh-huh. you should know what that one is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where St. Sir Thomas More Thank is you. like, hey, uh, here's a, a weird thing that happened. Uh, I visited a country that none of us knew existed, and uh, here's how the society is structured, and it's super weird, but kind of efficient in terms of, I don't know, what they're setting out to do. Uh, Well, there you go. Uh, New Atlantis is Bacon's version of this, which is about his kind of, like, scientific utopia. Like, here's my, it's unfinished, so it's like, here's here's my sort of fantastical imagining of a society that uh, is built basically upon, like, what I think are the good principles of investigation and learning and, like, you know, uh, uh, the worship of knowledge and its construction. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Both of these uh, are... Uh, posed by Nguyen to Robinson Crusoe, which is a novel by Daniel Defoe. Uh, and it is, it you know, rather than being kind of a thought experiment or a sort of philosophical thing, like more in, in Bacon, uh, Defoe is writing straight up just a story, as you said, like an adventure story. And it's about mm-hmm. this guy who gets uh, marooned on an island uh, and he lives there for a good long while. But over the course of his time there he has to figure out how to survive so he builds shelter he figures out how to get food how to farm food uh he eventually uh kind of enslaves a native to do things for him right he basically goes about and uh turns this little slice of island into like his closest approximation of uh living back in europe right uh so for Nguyen, both of these things are important uh, because on the one hand, the, the utopian stories, those show how, uh, individuals are the products of societies, right? Both in New Atlantis and in Utopia, the, the, the entire idea is like, if we could just structure society in such and such a way, uh, we would be producing citizens who felt this or that way and like fit into the machinery of society in this or that way. And here's how smoothly things could function or here are kind of the, the end goals that we could accomplish. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas on the other hand, uh, Defoe writes in Robinson Crusoe more of a story about a single individual who manages to use the space of the island to construct, like, a society around him through his own, like, you know, judgment and forethought and action and planning and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, in Minecraft, then, we have something like creative mode, uh, which, as Nguyen says, gives you uh, infinite abundance and physical immunity. And this allows, you know, it's notable that this is called creative mode because it's just like, oh, we're just, like, playing around. We're seeing, like, what we can produce, Right. That's one version of creativity. Uh, One of the things that Nguyen is going to point out is that survival mode, 
also has kind of an element of creativity to it, but it's a different element, right? Survival mode is you have limited resources, you have to figure out how to uh, build shelter, fight enemies, and so on and so forth, collect resources. That's the Robinson Crusoe, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Creativity uh, can exist in both contexts, but creativity is not the same, right? There's a a creativity that basically has no social structures or creativity that is about creating the social structures if we're, you know, just coming up with rules when we have infinite abundance versus creativity as uh, taking what is before you and finding ways to make it work to your advantage, Yeah. Yep. It'll make you feel good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> make make the world feel good. Uh yep. And so like Minecraft uh is basically uh for Nguyen uh a sandbox in which these kinds of things uh can be inculcated in children, uh, but also taught to them. And so some of the other interesting stuff in this chapter is when he gets into this is when we have Maslow. We need to talk about this because this is nuts. So Maslow, <laughs> the guy who did the hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that guy. Uh-huh. Yeah, that good old classic fella. Yeah. Uh, the famous pyramid that we love to make memes of. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, he- it turns out that this guy was overwhelmingly a crackpot. <laughs> yes. This this was my feeling reading this because I was like, oh, my God, I was in, I, in my intro to psych classes because my intro to psych professor was obsessed with creativity. That was our theme. So I like read all of his stuff on creativity, uh, which he thinks, by the way, like his definition of creativity is like the ultimate expression of your authentic self. Just just so you know, if you've ever thought you were being creative, you might have been fully expressing your most authentic self. And if you weren't, yeah. you weren't really being creative. That's why I thought you were going to go for it. Hey, did you think you were being creative? You might not have been. <laughs> Uh, and of course, as Wynn points out, this is also all bound up in a lot of ideology, um, stuff that we'll touch on maybe in the future with the other chapters. Mm-hmm. But this idea that uh, uh, so Maslow believes that children are naturally creative, right, that they are uh, because they have not. Um, this is a romantic idea of children and, and people in society, right? The, this idea that you are born kind of uh, beautiful and innocent and pure and kind of capable of apprehending the world around you with a, a simplicity and a clarity uh, that is admirable and worth emulating. Uh, but then society kind of beats that out of you by enculturating you to uh, various social structures and obligations and so on and so forth. Uh, so this turn toward the child as like the wellspring of creativity, right? This is what happens. This is who we could be before society beats our creativity and our original insights out of us. Like that's where Maslow mm-hmm. is coming from. Uh The other thing actually that's important about that is he says that the creative individual can withstand a lack of structure. That is, uh, if you're thrown into a big, messy situation, let's say, I don't know, a video game where there's no clear goal, but you have a lot of crafting uh, verbs, Mm -hmm. then you could find your own fun, right? Uh, Nguyen points out, this is also kind of like the situation of economic precarity. Oh, look, here's a bunch of part-time gig jobs. Well, figure out how to cobble them together to make yourself, you know, live and pay rent. Anyway... This is the important thing. Maslow has, and I quote here, his fantasy of eusychia, an imagined Mm. culture that would be generated by 1,000 self-actualizing people on some sheltered island where they would not be interfered with. Mm. Speak it. Breach. (laughs) I just... (laughs) 
Give it to me. It feels like it's it's kind of like a drill tweet, right? It's like, ah, oh, there are 1,000 self-actualizing people on a sheltered island, and they are going to create you psychia. Yeah, he's describing Burning Man. Yeah, he is. <laughs> the, uh, I, yeah, it's such a fascinating, I, anyone who, after the year, I don't know, 1700, is mm-hmm. sitting down to, like, make their own utopia, like, full-throated, I'm writing out a didactic utopia. Mm-hmm. You got something going on, buddy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you're on a different level. You're mm-hmm. doing a different thing than most people. And I got, like, I'm not complaining about it. That's interesting. It's just, like, you're an outlier now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you are you are beyond norms. Right. And, uh, yeah, this one is wild. It's just, like, can, can everyone hang? Do you know how to hang ontologically? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where hanging is also your self-actualization. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. what I'm saying, right? Like, you gotta, you gotta, like you got to hang and, like, advocate for yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, so the paradox of creativity then, right? Like, say, Maslow's idea of creativity is about uh, an individual who can basically step outside of society or who is willing to... The other word we can think of here is, like, conformity. Uh, Nguyen got in, got a into this in the introduction, actually, right, that in the 60s and 70s or sort of after that, um, there's a real push toward uh, nonconformity as like a cultural value in in the United States. Uh, And it's seen variously as, you know, like this is uh, the independent individualist democratic spirit, um, but this is also seen as a way of uh, forestalling like authoritarianism that is both seen as both you know potent as fascism and communism right like both fascism mm-hmm. and communism in this imaginary are figured as um uh instruments of conformity and so or rather like a uh, uh, structures right societies uh, about conformity and so what we need to do is like uh, encourage children to be non-conformists and to think for themselves and to be curious and so on and so forth uh, what is important about this, as Wynn points out, um, is that if this is your understanding of creativity, then creativity actually, even though it is being figured as something that is highly individualistic, it only ever becomes legible uh, against the grain of society, right? You need a tradition, you need convention, uh, you need some sort of rubric that can be bucked in order for creativity to happen. And so there's this kind mm-hmm. of contradiction or paradox uh, fundamentally between like, you know, some kind of like the, the many and the one or like uh, uh, the social and the individual uh, and what some sort of means. ludus and paideia. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Who could have, who could have ever thought about it? It would have taken an ancient Frenchman to think of that. The oldest Frenchman. That's right. Mm-hmm. And then this ends with, uh, you know, it talks about Minecraft and it gets into the nitty gritty kind of about Minecraft and like, how mm-hmm. does this work? Oh, you uh, uh, learn kind of your basic moves uh, and then those moves themselves can enter. Like you can build things like the game will teach you to build specific objects, but then you can uh, put those objects together in certain ways to generate effects or machines that are not recognized as discrete objects by the game itself, but nevertheless function as such within the parameters of the game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like the thing that happens here around these like mods or whatever. Yes. No, not, or whatever. Like, uh, it, it, we don't have to get into like the blow by blow, but 
in order to make Minecraft like flexible or legible in certain contexts, like the classroom or um, to make it do certain things that like at, at the time that that uh, Nguyen's talking about that like Notch was not interested in following through with. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to make it do that stuff, you had to kind of bend it toward these other goals. So there's a way that like in game, there's this kind of creative impulse that then gets modeled outside of the game, right? To like fit it into specific context. So creativity happens at like different scales or different levels of of interacting with the object. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get some good we get some good classic uh, gamer drama with this person's like total conversion mod that renders if you if you install their total conversion mod then you cannot install any other mods on your version of minecraft and yep it's too fundamental yep uh like i said there's drama about that because the person makes this this total conversion mod because they think like notch isn't seeing to the things that are supposed to be seen to i i'm not a minecraft person so i have no idea like what this could have possibly been. Apparently Notch put in wolves and that just pissed off this person. Well, yeah, put in wolves as opposed to like a billion other things that people might have wanted. Right. I think that's the the criticism there. Yeah. So anyway, uh, and that that ends up illustrating precisely kind of this paradox of creativity where uh, uh, the mod, uh, the person who made the mod uh, is named Flower Child. Uh, Flower Child's creativity is defined precisely because, or precisely by, like taking the the situation as it lays, as the game is being made, and being like, no, it's going to work like this now. And so, by that token, kind of severing themselves off from the the larger mod community. Right. Um. Then chapter two is about Make Magazine. It's a magazine to get you to get get out to your basement. And uh, or not to, not to your basement, to your garage. Uh-huh. Get out to that garage, build stuff, and more importantly, get that little kid using that laser cutter. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So what I said to you when I was reading this, I, I just had to search this uh, on Discord so I could quote myself. Uh, I said that this chapter might be one of the funniest academic chapters I've ever read. The tone is very staid and neutral, but the magazine itself comes out looking like a periodical for some of the most deranged people alive. Yeah, it looks like you're like, you know, whatever, looking at ads for Oreos and then you flip the page. And it's like, and this is how you use a, a, a homemade laser to punch a hole through your neighbor's house. <laughs> Yeah, there's so li- there's the what if scenario that's like what if what if you had been working on your prepper homestead mm-hmm. and uh, a flood came along and your lazy neighbor was drowning would you save him <laughs> would you save his dumb ass there's like that like I mean I don't know if that's actually how it reads but that that is how when kind of presents <laughs> I'm pretty it, sure right? it doesn't say would you save his dumb ass I don't know that's kind of how it's presented you know what I it mean? is like I'm not quoting but yeah. The implication is that his dumb ass is drowning. Right. And it is a, and, and it's it is an ethical open question if you need to save him mm-hmm. in the, you know, in the like fun activity that, that you fell out at the end of the magazine. Yeah. Yeah. So Make It Magazine uh, is a magazine for the maker movement. And the maker movement is basically a bunch of people who like to 
build shit and do like science experiments and whatnot, it seems like, you know, like just, oh, uh, maybe I could <laughs> use some sort of like laser to blast a hole in my neighbor's house. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, so the, the idea behind this whole thing and the, the particularly in terms of like how it is expected to interface with children is that the magazine contains uh, like things that you can build with your kids, right? Like the, there's a, a an urging within the periodical to like get kids into doing stuff, right? Hands-on building, hands-on experimentation, uh, doing science experiments like in the home. And one of the first things that Nguyen talks about is the way that it, uh, an article in the magazine discusses Francois Reinst. I'm sorry if I don't, I'm not Swiss, so I don't know how to pronounce that. But uh, he is a Swiss engineer who apparently as a child was a pyromaniac. Hmm. Or like, you know, exhibited signs of, you know, tending toward pyromania. And mm -hmm. so uh, his saving grace came when he realized he could uh, have an excuse to safely build little fires by experimenting with homemade rockets. And that is that, that that is kind of a uh, I mean, that's this is a thing that Nguyen comes back to throughout this chapter, right? That this magazine takes a kid who could have been a pyromaniac and is like, but look. If you just redirect that that inclination to something productive, look what can happen. Look what can happen. If you could just capture that energy, <laughs> what kind of world could you make, you know? Yep. Hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Quote, the construction of young Reinst as both a potentially destructive child and an innovator in rocket science highlights the tensions between risks and responsibility underlying amateur and DYI modes of techno science. This is actually another important thing to highlight here that didn't really come up in my description earlier, that there is a very much a, a like techno science angle to all of this. Uh, which is also deeply gendered, and Nguyen points this out, because Make ended up having a, uh, this is what they called it, a sister publication called Craft uh, that was all about more feminine pursuits, about textiles and, and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's notable that those things are not, for some reason, considered a part of Make or the Maker movement. Uh, and, well, you know, the, the other kind of thing that ends up happening here, quote, Make positions manual craft work as a response to contemporary over-reliance on mass-produced commodities and computing technologies while simultaneously reinforcing fundamental neoliberal logics of digital culture through figures of children as naturally creative subjects requiring proper education into innovative risk-taking and entrepreneurial adults uh, capable of self-governance. Mm -hmm. Right. So self-governance is yeah. that's a wild addition at the end of that sentence. Some some sort of autark. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, uh, so that's kind of uh, one of the outputs here, right? That uh, uh, there's this thing going on where make is positioning itself as like counter to uh industrial like mass production right figuring out how to make things yourself and do things yourself uh but the other part of this is that you are you are doing this with your children you're you're getting your children's uh subscriptions to this magazine uh because you want to train them to be willing to take risks and to shoulder the responsibility of those risks 
to become like successful entrepreneurs, essentially, right? That the the background radiation of the ideology here is uh, the Californian ideology, which is brought up explicitly, right? This idea that you need to move fast and break things uh, in order to create value or innovate, uh, but you also need to be able to uh, be judicious about how fast you're moving and what you're breaking, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, and, and like this is reductive to this chapter, which is doing a lot. But mm-hmm. if you're looking for like the kernel of the claim, it's that this magazine is a training da- ground for capital, right? Yes. It is a, is a training ground to uh, enculturate people into the values of capital through participation primarily, mm-hmm. right? Like it, it is your willingness to do and try and fail maybe, and then learn how to do it, experiment, all, you know, use empiricism, mm-hmm. all these things, right, that makes you, that, that produces kind of a cultural good, you know, according to the magazine's ideology. Uh, 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 Nguyen's not making this connection this chapter necessarily, although it's happening in the previous chapter. This is exactly what people say about games all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Safe place to fail, mm-hmm. right? A place where you learn the value of self-improvement. I mean, good God, go go pick a random review of Dark Souls, either <laughs> on on the critical side or just the fan side, and you'll see that narrative appear, appear over and over again, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's something that's been cynically, I guess, you know, the thing I, I, I could say, and this has been said by many people, you know, this is not, not me by myself, but like, uh, the emergence of video games is the uh, the the wholesale adoption of neoliberal notions into uh, into effort, right? Mm-hmm. The stuff we do is just doing neoliberalism on like uh, uh, an ideological testing ground scale, as opposed to like trading things back and forth, starting businesses, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, this magazine is so fascinating because it's such a clear crystallization of that same deal, but like. But, but and specifically because it's like, hey, dad, do you want to learn how to use a beaker? Make your kid do it, too. Like the 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 uh, parental training manual part of it is so mm-hmm. fascinating to me. Uh, because of, like, well, and he connects that to like the the like do it yourself movement, right? Like doing little right, home yeah. improvements around the house. Again, this is like this is raced. This is classed. It's gendered. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, who who is who in America in the mid century has time to putter around the house and figure out ways to like make the cabinets slightly better or whatever the hell it is you're doing. Right. Uh, fix fix some of those pipes that have been leaking underneath the bathroom sink, what have you. Um, so, yeah, there's a real way that it's like getting getting the dads as well as the kids. Uh, and as you gestured to in those like weird thought experiments, like what would you do in this absurd apocalyptic scenario? Train like you talking. Can you imagine just like talking through that with your kid? Uh, yes, I can. <laughs> just like sitting down and like having a conversation with dad about what uh, we could build with what we had around the house when uh, the zombie apocalypse finally happens. So one of the things Nguyen points out is that like the this magazine kind of backs into prepper stuff. Um. And also it tends to advocate for the privatization of education because the public school system does not encourage people to take risks. It's all about getting you to meet the standardized test scores and uh, it's about coddling you. It doesn't take it doesn't teach you to, to do things with your hands. Right. Uh, a lot of ideological battles going on here. Right. 
hey, uh, little Michael, mm-hmm. I bought two gallons of acid. You want to go play with it in the backyard, see what we can get up to? <laughs> yes. God, I love uh, his, he describes the story that it runs on what they call the radioactive Boy Scout, which was this, uh, <laughs> yes. right, this kid who was trying to get a merit badge. And I, apparently this was in the 90s. He tried to make a nuclear reactor in his backyard, and uh, the magazine presents it as like, isn't it cool that this Boy Scout was like doing weird nuclear shit in the shed behind his house? Like, isn't he an example to us all? And Nguyen follows this with what the what the article fails to describe is how uh, everything got declared a Superfund site. Like, it turns out doing That's it. America. That is the end result of, like, the American spirit writ large, is I, the, the, the thoroughgoing destruction of the land and its people. Uh, chef's kiss. No notes on the idiocy of, of accomplishment here. Yeah. I mean, it's like a fucking fallout joke. That, right. Exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like a thing we would make up. Uh-huh. <laughs> This some some this kid going full Tommy knocker in his backyard. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. But that's so. Like, how does that fit into neoliberalism? Right. Uh. Well, as everything becomes amateurized, uh, everyone has to take on the risks. Right. Uh. One of the kind of counter or counter narratives uh, that comes out here is like, hey, scientists are a distinct like group of people, right? Who who occupy a distinct function in society. And that came about for reasons, right? At some point as history went on, people thought to themselves, hey, we need like professionalized scientists who work in laboratories for various reasons. And so uh, all of the, you know, those reasons are often like uh, uh, risky, right? Like who's going to expose themselves to radioactive material or like biohazardous material? That's another thing that comes up here. Apparently there have been like multiple like, uh, uh, like raids on like home bio labs. Uh, you know, who's being exposed to what, who is taking on this risk and make uh, as a magazine and sort of the maker movement more generally from Nguyen's perspective encourages uh, everyone to uh, take on risk personally, but in the process, like transfer that risk to everyone else also, right? That the, the mm. risk like trickles down to everyone around them. Uh, and this is, you know, fits right into kind of the uh, the neoliberal uh, system where you just kind of got to take your chance. You got to get out there and shoot your shot and take on that project and see if you can get it done and see if you can build up enough from that to go to the next project or whatever. Chapter three, Instagram and creative filtering of authentic selves. Everybody get turned into an adolescent. <laughs> Yep, the it's yeah. If you if you uh, thought that the internet was making people weird, uh, don't worry, you're correct. Right, the internet turns us all into teenagers forever. That's right. Mm-hmm. Because I I mean I think this is an interesting claim. I don't know if I buy this claim. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think that I think I need I need a longer chapter to like convince me of the thing. But I do find it provocative, right? Yeah. That if. If adolescence is uh, for Nguyen, right? If adolescence mm-hmm. and pulling on other people, this is not, he's not making this up. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like there's a citational apparatus here. But the, but the idea is that if adolescence is about self fashioning mm-hmm. and kind of navigating your life, the conditions you live under in order to kind of determine what and who you are, 
then platforms like Instagram that that make that uh, uh, the mode of interaction, right? The way you interact with if you produce, you know, uh, uh, videos or images, right? If you just like click like all the time, okay, maybe that's not the same. But if you're a kind of active participant, you have to do that all the time. It is about kind of self-fashioning, self-crafting all the time. That's the whole deal. And so it kind of backs us into a kind of eternal adolescence where the ambiguity about our kind of future, our, our, not our future, but our like final stable state is always deferred, right? Mm-hmm. Like adulthood or whatever is always deferred. And like, like, you know, if you hear that and you got some quibbles, I also have quibbles with it. But I do find it like interesting and provocative um, and helpful to think with it. Like maybe that is what's going on. And because of that, it's constantly pulling on our kind of creative capacities to make us do things um, and kind of habituate us in different ways. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's neat. I think yeah. it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And like the other uh, piece of the puzzle here is the notion of the brand, right? And self-branding. Yeah. And uh, the brand is the thing that you have to maintain, but also the thing that can be reinvented. And that's going to shift if you, you know, shift the platform that you're on or the type of content that you're making or what have you. Um. There's also a lot about selfies. We haven't said that word once, but selfie is probably like the key word of this chapter uh, because the selfie operates as a, a, you know, kind of a little prism where Nguyen can pull all these pieces apart, right? The the selfie as it emerges into the popular consciousness as um, this weird, frivolous thing that like all these young people are are preoccupied with, and in particularly young women, these girls, they're being vain. Uh, the, the internet is ruining their social skills and making them uh, self-involved. But actually also, uh, and he gets into like some interviews with uh, like, you know, 2016 or like, you know, that era interviews with uh, young women who have brands right or influencers on instagram whatever uh talking oh about my god it's me it's me uh pulling my uh what do you call them uh my binoculars down uh-huh i go oh my god it's women with brands <laughs> and it turns we, out it's a lot of work getting our jeep you yeah know, we got... <laughs> it is a lot of work sucks yeah right and there's the example of did i write down her name there's this one woman who he talks about who got big on Instagram. Um, I do not think I wrote down her name, unfortunately. Uh, but she, so she, you know, gets big on Instagram. Uh, but the thing about selfies, right? The thing about these pictures that you're posting to Instagram, and this was the nature of social media. Like, I don't think it is this way now, right? Uh, I mean, sometimes it is. Contextually, I think this still activates. But especially in the early days, uh, you know, social media was just like, ah, this is just like people hanging out, regular people. You didn't expect to see famous people necessarily on social media. You didn't expect to pe- for people to become famous on social media for being there. Uh, I think I think the first is true. I don't I, 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 I don't know if the first is true. I do think the second one is true. I don't think people realized you could become like equivalent to a celebrity by tweeting or whatever mm-hmm. or posting pictures. Well, I remember it was like a novelty that like Shaq was on Twitter, right? It's like, it, oh, that was a novelty. But right? that was also like the draw is like Shaq's on Twitter. Yeah, right. It's like Will Ferrell. The real Will Ferrell's on Twitter. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but because that was part of it, too. Right. It's like you didn't know who was who. Right, 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 right. So there's and a little bit of a thrill of that of like, you know, Jennifer, An- Jennifer Aniston could be reading my tweets. <laughs> Jennifer, do you listen to the show? 
Wear a t-shirt. Je- Jennifer, uh, tap twice for yes and once for no. <laughs> onto onto the uh the table on your television program i did write down this woman's name i think it's um uh essena or essena uh o'neill mm-hmm. uh she ended up doing like a behind the scenes thing where she showed like how much work went into staging a particular shot because the fantasy here right is that you are seeing like in situ snapshots of a person's life right that yeah. there's like as little mediation as possible um, and so then she ends up showing like, Hey, here's how many times I like tried to do this shot. Here's how many angles I took. Like, you know, here's how the lighting was set up. Uh, and her followers went nuts and started accusing her of being a scammer and being fake, uh, and artificial and so on and so forth. And as Nguyen says, right, that this is, this is the tension inherent in the self brand in social media and how it operates, uh, is that it, on the one hand, uh, gives you this this uh, uh, almost fantastical capability to construct and cultivate the way other people see you. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it gets those other people to maybe uh, take for authentic or like to, to apprehend you in a certain way where they they think there is something about you that is authentic that is actually downstream of you making various rhetorical choices and then uh you know in terms of presentation or whatever and then uh you know what's real and what's not any anyone as you said it could be anyone on there like it could become just like straight up con artistry so carolyn calloway shows up here <laughs> right. as well right and i love it right Wait. And she has explicitly like turned her brand into being a scammer. I saw just on like Blue Sky the other day, someone got like a package from her. Someone like ordered something from her, and it came in like um, uh, you know, like the the plastic like sort of bubble wrap packaging. Uh, and there was a big sticker on it that said "Thank you for scamming small." Cool, right? <laughs> Very good. I find that thrilling. (laughs) (laughs) Thrilling how? I just, I love the, I I love the, the double down. You know Uh what I mean? Yeah. Like if, if you're going to be like an internet person, right. Where you're like beginning and end of your life is like pitching stuff to people on the internet, you know, whether it's your, and I use this word on purpose, your content, right. Uh Or your weird, you know, tchotchke you sell or whatever. Right. When in doubt, quadruple down. You know what I mean? And like that impulse, I just, I find it, it's the human spirit. You know what uh-huh. I mean? Like it, it, this is our species to be like, <laughs> you call me a scammer? Oh, well, you haven't seen anything. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I love it. Yes. It's good. You, 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 you remember the, uh, the, uh, commercials with the guy who wore the, um, the suit covered in question marks? And you could buy the oh. book from him that had like answers to questions or something in it. I don't know yeah. what he was selling. I I very vaguely know what you're talking about, although I could maybe be manufacturing memories of a Batman villain. It's not the Riddler. Oh, okay. Hold on. I'm gonna. I'll okay. send you the picture. People okay. at home are. They he know like exactly. he put he put around trophies uh, that I had to climb into <laughs> places and find. Yeah, I know who this guy is. No, let me. I'm gonna figure it out. Uh, yeah, Matthew Lesko. He would. The commercial was about free money. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm I mean, it's like it, real. I got. I, I just sent you the picture. Oh yeah. 
this is the American spirit to me. Uh huh. Like conceptually, it, like there is nothing more, you know, uh, uh, in um, Alison Rumfitt's novel "Be Mean to Me." Uh huh. Yes. You know, you how you can dig down into the terrible heart of England, right? And it's like an evil transphobic slug or whatever uh-huh. down there. Yeah. This guy's at the heart of America. <laughs> That's what's underneath the Overlook Hotel. That's right. It's this guy. <laughs> yeah, I just think sometimes the internet people tap into that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that spirit that I appreciate is all yeah. I'm saying. Yep, yep, yep. They do. And I mean, and that's that's basically that chapter, right? Like that, uh, the point there, right, to, to maybe like smooth it down a little bit and like extract something for the core argument, right, is that uh, all these young people who are getting, uh, who are flocking to these social media uh, platforms, right, all these young women who were taking all these selfies on Instagram and whatnot, uh, they were like learning in the streets, so to speak, uh, the methods of self-branding that they are going to need to utilize in order to succeed in a highly precarious creative economy. Yeah, create. You know, as the subtitle tells us, creative laborers. Right. Right. Again, it's a not to be reductive, but this it's another chapter. They're all about this, right? But about different testing grounds for production of people who are um, who take certain labor conditions and ways of engaging with the economy as normal. Yep. Right, and this this is the way of doing it. Instagram, every moment that you're thinking about producing something for it is a moment where you're being entrained in a, into a particular kind of neoliberalism, um, and uh, it's good. I I think this is the outlier chapter to me. Mm-hmm. On one hand, I think it's the one that's probably the easiest to excerpt and just teach by itself. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think it would have been perfectly fine to cut this chapter entirely, bulk up the other three, um, and uh, I think I might have liked the book a little bit more. Mm. Yeah, I also feel like it's a bit of an outlier, and I'm not sure why that is. Um, I think because it's a social media thing, I think that's a big Mm -hmm. part of it, right? Like voluntaristic play, voluntaristic making, uh, Mm -hmm. and then we'll get to the last chapter, but it also has this kind of heavy voluntaristic, you know, uh, cultural narrative to it. That's Mm -hmm. not really the cultural narrative around. Like it is voluntaristic activity. I understand why it's in the book, right? Like it's not Mm -hmm. like out of the field or anything. But it's uh, it it has a different tenor to why you would engage with Instagram, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not the same way you would engage with that magazine. It's not even the same way you would engage with Minecraft. And I suppose part of that is something we haven't even talked about uh, because it doesn't really uh, show up that much in in much of the argument. But I think it is important for what we're talking about here: the filtering function and like where yeah. that comes yeah. from in Instagram's history. And it's so easy to actually forget that that like. Instagram, when it launched, was, uh, and this is just an interesting thing that uh, that Nguyen points out, right, that it was born out of the nostalgia that the creators had for, like, those instant cameras that they had when they were kids, right? So there's mm-hmm. already something about, like, childhood play happening in Instagram, uh, but... Instagram itself, when it launches, is selling itself as like a place where anyone can become like a, a a cool photographer. And the filters, the filter function is a part of that, right? Like because uh, at the time that Instagram launches, everyone like not everyone has phone cameras. I didn't have a phone camera, um, but like there were cameras on phones, but they also, they were serviceable. They were not that great, uh, or they were great under certain conditions, maybe is how we can put it, right? Like low Mm -hmm. light was a nightmare. Uh, but 
uh, filters were kind of this like stopgap or like this thing that was introduced basically so people could uh, touch up the photos in ways that made them look better. And so there was kind of a creative angle there, right? The, the idea of like, oh, you can play around with these filters and, uh, uh, you know, have more control over the image that you're putting online. Uh, but it does ultimately like that specific little kernel does fall by the wayside, I think, in Instagram, maybe more generally, and also in this chapter, which ends up being so much about uh, uh, the maintenance of the self brand and whatnot. Right. Chapter four, design fiction and the imagination of technological futures. What did you think of this one? I think it's good. Um it, it's interesting for design fiction to kind of show up here um, as its own, I don't know, kind of critical key term because everything else is kind of like the, not a platform necessarily, but kind of a distinct artifact, right? Mm -hmm. The magazine, Minecraft, Instagram. Design fiction is like a, a mode of thinking. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And like, I, 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 I'm not critical of that move. I think that's totally fine. But it does take a slightly different theoretical apparatus to engage with. And I feel like a lot of this chapter is um, having to build that. You know what I mean? Which is which does give this. I don't think that this chapter is like an outlier feeling chapter whatsoever, but it does read quite differently from the other chapters. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas the other chapters are doing a lot to kind of historically situate, tell you about where the thing came from. What did people do with it? All that kind of stuff. This really has to run you through like the history of design fiction mm -hmm. um, in a pretty interesting way. Design fiction, uh, it's a term that gets used. And if, you know, I encourage you, if you want to know about it, you can give it an old Google. Uh, it's a big, it's a big field. Whatever Nguyen says, whatever I say, it's not going to be sufficient to actually talking about it. Um, the entry point for a lot of people is the Bruce Sterling work, science fiction writer Bruce Sterling, futurist Bruce, Ster Bruce Sterling, mm -hmm. guy who created the term, as far as I know, design fiction, uh, meaning that you can use design and the creation of objects and the conceptual creation of objects, so like drawing up a design document or a schematic or an engineering uh, diagram, whatever, of a thing that doesn't exist or a thing that might exist in a different um kind of order of reality, right? So like in 2050, when climate change is much more significant and the world is much hotter, um, what do air conditioners look like then, right? Mm -hmm. And you can design the object for a world in which our hottest day is 121 degrees or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, what does that look like? What, 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 does clo what does clothing look like? What is your... Um, what does your car look like, right? Because your car might not work at temperatures that hot. Things like mm -hmm. that. From that point, it gets blown out into like not just a, a tool or an idea, but like a practice. Like it's a thing that lots of people do and it's kind of part of their job. And because of that, it is a, now like a market segment of people who are doing this kind of work. And so when uh, kind of plays in that space, you know, what does it mean to engage in design fiction? What does it mean to look to design fiction to solve our problems? Um, what does it mean that design fiction uh, asks us to put ourselves in mentally thing conditions that don't exist? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, we kind of run through that circuit, I guess, maybe not in that order, but <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, right, that's the, the design fiction thing. And then the like, what does this have to do with children? Uh, well, uh, we are 
teaching children to do this. They're like, that's, you know, that's part of the maker movement even, right? It's like that that's it's the same impulse of like teaching children to be speculative in this way, uh, to think about things that uh, could exist or that they could make. Um, Kind of the case study here is this. I didn't write it down, but there was like a program or something at Arizona State University. Yeah, Uh, yeah, it's like a center for strategic thinking or something. Yeah. Uh, So like a group of students uh, with that center um, uh, did a series of short films called Corner Convenience. uh, And those short films are all like they they take place in a convenience store and they all show kind of uh, speculative technologies. Right. Or uh, not even actually technologies is sometimes I would say the wrong word uh, products, really. And like that's the point that Nguyen makes is right that they they some of them are technologies. Right. But some of them are just products like one of them is like a a lottery ticket that uh, gets you Twitter followers, for instance. Um, uh, and that is also like the problem, right? Is that these, uh, kids have been tasked with imagining the future and what they have imagined are like gadgets that can populate the shelves of of a convenience store. Uh, and so they like are just thinking in terms of commodities, right? They're not thinking in, in the speculation is not being turned towards say like, uh, systems or like larger dynamics and sort of how society is structured. Uh, the speculation has been yoked into uh, maintaining capitalism by coming up with more things for capitalism to make and sell people. Yeah. And that large, I mean, this is Bruce Sterling's own criticism of the design fiction that kind of followed the inaugurating event to the point where I think he has disavowed design fiction. Oh, interesting. I think so. I, yeah. I, I don't, please don't take that as as gospel or a thing. But I do remember watching a talk from him at like a British conference a few years ago, where where if not disavowing, then saying like maybe we've hit the limits to what design fiction actually allows us to do um, as as a practice. Particularly, I think he was concerned about how how easily it was captured, mm-hmm. um, because for him it was very much about like novel exploratory technology. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it is worth noting that Bruce Sterling has started roughly 10 billion projects um, and uh, invented many different like modes of engagement that just didn't go anywhere because he does not seem to have much of an interest in like carrying through with things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> serial founder, we call those people now. Uh, some interesting stuff here, more about children. Uh, this is like me summarizing the history that Nguyen gives. Uh, that since about, you know, the Romantic period or the Enlightenment, children are taken as being naturally imaginative, but there is also a sense that children's imaginations need to be disciplined. Uh, and so this is why, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of, like, these kids' speculations are being routed toward whatever end is important. Uh, Nguyen, as the history that he gives, is that play and imagination were initially seen as preparatory for adult life. Uh, that is to say, like, when you were speculating as a child back in these early days, uh, when you were playing and coming up with, like, ideas about things, it was often geared toward, like, what am I going to be when I'm an adult or what is, like, my function going to be in the adult world? Uh, what, what does that look like and how does that work? Um, and then in the mid-century, uh, in the mid-20th century, uh, Nguyen says, this starts to unstitch a little bit as consumer culture enters the scene and many children's toys rather than being kind of preparatory or practical in this way so like think construction toys for boys um and uh like dolls for girls right 
teaching them to be uh, mothers and like builders or whatever, you know, respectively. Um, you start getting toys that are like, you know, weird monsters that have no kind of like practical place in, in an adult's world. Uh, and then we also get the emergence of science fiction, uh, which uh, tends to center on young boys in terms of fandom and thereby like the technological imagination is, is rendered more masculine. So then uh, we arrive at this place where what are kids doing with their, you know, there's a gender component there. Uh, but then we arrive in the present moment where more broadly speaking, and I'm just going to quote this, um, quote, I suggest that conceptions of youth as naturally imaginative as they are imbricated in speculative technological design practices express a logic of extracting youth for the creative economy. A little bit later. To educate youth is to teach them how to imagine products as creative workers in order to produce new commodities for themselves to consume. So play has been warped around to, uh, like, getting kids to imagine things that they want and then selling that stuff back to them, right? Look at something like Roblox or whatever. Right. Right. The 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 delicious experimental platforms. Right, right. Cool. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the the final chapter is really interesting, uh, if only because, or I mean, in addition to, not if only because, in addition to, um, because, I you know, I think this kind of um, set of questions about speculation, like what prompts speculation, you're right, that's like a thing I care about, obviously, wrote a book about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, what I think is fascinating, too, is that Largely, the people I know who deal in this kind of space, uh, right, like the practical products for imagining different worlds, they're all over design fiction. Like, they're done with it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, they, they do not appreciate it. Uh, like, Don and Raby, no thank you. I've heard lots of people kind of turn their back, not on those people, but like the kind of uh, <laughs> the imposition of that framework onto imagining the different ways that technology might work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I find that interesting too, that like, this is maybe um, just as much a time capsule as anything else, you know, cause this chapter ends actually <clears throat> um, with a uh, evocation citation, whatever to Ruha Benjamin, um, who's uh, I think it's racist technology. I'm teaching it right now. I should know the title off the dome, but I think the title of the book is Race as Technology, uh, but it also kind of ends in a very similar way to this book, which is just like, maybe we can like operate our way out of this thing. You know what I mean? Maybe this mm-hmm. will work, but also Benjamin's pretty cynical. Not as cynical as, 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 as one could be, but but pretty cynical about our way, uh, our capability to just like tech our way out of this problem. And, and I do appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Nope, it's a I mean, good book. Great book. I enjoyed reading the book. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you know, this doesn't hurt. Quick book. Yeah. <laughs> 100 and, 165 pages. You know what I mean? Like a pretty quick read. Um, I think it's teachable, too. Mm-hmm. Like, I think you could, like, you could teach this as, like, half of a course, really. You could do, give students the book, read the Minecraft chapter play Minecraft, 
read some more stuff on Minecraft, do an analysis of Minecraft, right? Does it does it actually do the things this book says it does? Does it do other stuff? Whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And you could do it with every chapter. And then have them do some design fiction work. I think it would work really well. Yeah. Yeah. Chapter two, that's unit two will be fun. It's like, okay, let's make some rockets. I think it would be great, actually, to give students like, you know, 10 PDFs of random issues of make or, you know, of, of this magazine and be like, all right, go do one of the things in these magazines. <laughs> well, uh, do we know what we're reading next month? No. Okay. Well, we will decide. <laughs> yeah, we have to decide right? that. We will We will decide that. Uh, and in the meantime, just remember that uh, we are part of the Range Touch network. Uh, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash range touch. And that's where you get access to notes for Game Study Study Buddies. But if you support us at higher levels, you'll also get uh, bonus content for all of our other shows, depending on where you, you slot in. That's, you know, bonus episodes for Just King Things, bonus episodes for Shelled by Genre, our show with Austin Walker, where uh, if you're not listening to uh, that show, we are at the time that you are hearing this, we're coming up on the end of our first season where we've been reading the science fantasy epic Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun. So that would be a now would be a good time to maybe uh, uh, get caught up as we close that out. Uh, just recommending it. People seem to like that show. People like it, and it's a good time to make it. So, um, I I have a uh, claim to what our next book will be. Okay, all right. Mizuko Ido's engineering play: A Cultural History of Children's Software. Okay, cool. Wait, have you talked to me about this book before? I have. We've talked about it before. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, sure. I mean, I agree to it because I sight unseen. Why not? Titles such as Number Munchers, Oregon Trail, Kid Picks, and Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Oh, man, we're going to get to talk about Kid Picks. Kid picks. People love kid picks. I've heard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a that's a big gap from my youth. I, I did. I have. I never had access to kid picks. It's uh, one of the real strong, bright memories I have of the elementary school computer lab. I uh, yeah. The only game I will talk about when we get there. But the only game I'll figure out the name of it. It was like a DOS game where you like learned how to spell, and you were like a bee in a beehive. Hmm. And you had to like pull eggs out of the out of the queen's egg oh. receptacle and you had to like they, they would really zoom in you know it'd be like an ink repair you know yeah. title right you'd like really get in there you'd be like oh i don't know about this yeah. mm. and they'd be like spell bird you know you gotta type <laughs> that out all right well yeah the, uh, do your research and next month we can talk about your weird cronenbergian dos game very good yeah all right well that's Game Study Study Buddies for this month. It was a short one, but uh, it was still an edifying book to read. We will catch you later. Until then, remember that the social is predicated on its exclusions. Mm-hmm.